James Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 3, Episode Number 8. Thank you very much for joining us in the Cubbyhole, a real humdinger of an episode to sink your teeth into today. And you don't need Jaws's steel teeth. You don't need Goldie's gold teeth. Uh, you don't even need Raoul Silver's no teeth to enjoy this one. And if you do indeed enjoy today's show, please let us know by posting a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast site you're currently using. Uh, they really do help us reach the wider Bond community. Uh, if you'd like to get, if you'd like to go an extra step in supporting the show, uh, then we don't have a Patreon page, but we do have Phil in Cubrench who eagerly awaits your Bond-themed questions. So don't be a stranger. Do get in touch with any questions, comments, theories to our email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Or you can post on our social media channels, More Cubby on Twitter, M-O-O-R-E, of course, uh, or on Facebook and Instagram by typing our full show title. Now, in our previous episode, we spoke to author and former actor Ben Payton about his passion for Bond and also how it's influenced his own writing. We shared our 007 best Brosnan one-liners, and we also examined Bond's eventful trip to Shrublands. But on to this episode, let's introduce our usual hosting team. Firstly, it's a man who, rumor has it, has been banned from all Bond quizzes because he's just too good at the trivia. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? Um, I'm very good. It was a good week this week, wasn't it? Barbara Broccoli, Michael G. Wilson had their um, investitures at the palace. Interestingly, they then suggested that the perfect future Bond candidate would be Prince William, um, which, which I thought was a very odd suggestion, being that um, he's never even asked to do any acting. It's always the Queen who does the acting with, of course, Bond and uh, more recently with Paddington Bear. But that got me thinking, because obviously Prince William, um, amongst many other things, is bold. Could there ever be a bold James Bond? Well, I know that Sean had a uh, thinning hairline when he kind of first started and he, he relied on a couple of toothpaste. I don't think Prince Andrew, uh, Prince Andrew, Prince William could, uh, definitely not Prince Andrew. Uh, I, don't I, think think I don't think Prince Andrew's going to be allowed <laughs> to do it. No, I was going to say, yeah, I don't really see a bold Bond. I don't know why. Maybe I'm just, you know, as, as someone who is also follically challenged, I am going very bold at the moment. Well, I think you're onto something here, Adam. I think it should be a bold actor who, who then wears the Connery-style toupee. Oh, I thought you were going to say, is that the most progressive Bond casting that could be done? We've talked about a female Bond, we've talked about a non-white Bond. Actually, looking at how many toupees Connery had to go through is the ultimate progressive Bond casting a bold actor. But I agree, it definitely shouldn't be Prince Andrew next. And secondly, it's a man who has so many crazy Bond theories that I'm half expecting him to pull out some link between Rosie Carver and Elliot Carver. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? No, I'm, I'm very well, thank you, guys. And of course, um, we've had a lot of interaction on our socials um, this week. The Spy Who Loved Me was um, just has just left um, cinemas, so a lot of you guys have been getting in touch to say that you were off to enjoy it this week. So Keith Richardson was um, in touch to say that Tuesdays in Ireland are Bond Day, so you're also enjoying the um, the Bond seventy seven soundtrack. We also in our last episode 
for the James Bond Film Club looked at The Rocketeer. Now, this is, of course, um, the opportunity for Timothy Dalton to play his first post-Bond role. On Twitter, a lot of you were kind of reminiscing about this as one of your favourite childhood films. So Ben Leslie was saying that he's not seen it for a long time but can remember enjoying it. Adam Silverman also saying that he watched it originally when he was 12 and really enjoyed it and would go back to it. Everybody coming back to say that this is one of their kind of favourite childhood memories. Interesting you mentioned Bond 77 uh, in your Spy You Love Me correspondence there. That's the, um, the ski chase soundtrack, isn't it? I love that one as well. Well, of course, it's also the iconic moment where we see the Lotus Esprit takes, obviously where you get the, the full-on disco sound effect. So let's start the episode, as we always do, with On the Scene, where we take a fond look back at the interesting, the intriguing, and often the illuminating scenes in the Bond franchise. And this week, we're lighting up our delectados and heading off for a jaunt to Havana. Yes, we're looking at the Cuba scenes in everyone's favourite Bond film, Die Another Day. But don't worry if you haven't watched it recently, I can't imagine why, uh, because we've got a man who can summarise it all. It's over to Mr. Alan Partridge. Cue sexy samba music and an on-screen Havana caption, so we definitely know we're in Cuba. Bond swaggers about in casual holiday clover and visits dapper cigar-chomping silver fox Raoul before nicking off with some binoculars, a battered book on birds and a massive pimpmobile. At a beach bar, Bond sups a Magito and overhears the typically unpleasant South African wanging on, but then actual Halle Berry in a skimpy orange piece of nothing does an Ursula Andress, Bronholm thwarts through his steamed-up binoculars and they engage in weapons-grade banter. Magnificent view. I'm just here for the birds. Then they do some proper sweaty bonking while sucking on figs to some 90s erotic thriller blue lighting. Bond and Jinx both sneak into the weird Los Organos face-off clinic, Bond by punching the South Africans' lights out. I don't need no wheelie tear. And Jinx by pistol-popping a creepy doctor who's been getting his grubby mitts all up in a grill. Bond finds North Korea's sparkliest export Zhao and squeezes him in the drip bag before they recreate the health farm fight from Never Say Never Again with added slow-mo and super magnets. Bond gets drenched by sprinklers and takes a wall out. Jinx can't shoot Zhao for toffee and then has to do an extremely unconvincing saucy CGI bikini dive off the wall while Bronom stands there looking like a right muppet. The end. Well, thanks a lot for that, Alan. I'm not sure I could, I can't summarise this scene better myself. I think that's a perfect summary. Um, yeah, Die Another Day, I think in our review of Die Another Day in series one, I said that it really falls off a cliff after we meet Jacinta Johnson's character. Uh, but I would, I still have fun with it. I think, uh, and generally the cubbyhole, I think we agree, don't we, that uh, slightly better than Quantum of Solace we do. There is some fun to be had, even if it's very stupid, silly fun. It's just the, the action seems to be incomprehensible and weird for this one. I'm not sure why Bond or Jinx can't shoot Zhao. At one point, Zhao even has time to look at Halle Berry before she then misses her shot in front of the helicopter, which is just bizarre. The one redeeming feature is Brosnan, as always, I think gives a great performance. You can tell that he's maybe 
past his sell-by date, perhaps, but he can still see he's still comfortable in the role of Bond. Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with you, though, Martin. There, there are a lot of elements of this that are quite good fun, and you know, and I think that for all of its faults, Dying of the Day never really takes itself too seriously. These scenes in Havana really, um, you know, reflect that because. There are some good elements to these scenes. You know, it, it does progress the plot. Obviously, we see Jinx for the first time. Um, I agree, Brosnan is really good in these scenes. Unfortunately, as we also mentioned, there are a lot of silly moments in this. I mean, the CGI is terrible. The Jinx jump at the end is completely implausible. You know, to fall that far and, you know, somehow land in the water without injuring yourself is completely ridiculous. So one of the even more ridiculous points is the rather comical voice altering technology, where essentially in the uh, Cuban clinic, patients are, are given their new identity by listening to a, a tape to to get their new accent and their new language, which is a little bit silly. It's, you know, it's kind of, if they're paying all this money to, to you know, have very expensive and very painful face altering technology you kind of expect the uh, voice altering technology to be at the same level cuba has a knack in bond of being the point where it's a scene that starts off really good and by the end of it you realize oh no we're going in a bad direction here because similarly in no time to die the bits with paloma in cuba are brilliant and then by the time we've killed off felix lighter we suspect that this film isn't going the way that we want it to and also it's it's the sci-fi elements that send bond off on a bit of a wild goose chase obviously we have the nanobots in uh, no time to die and here we have the weird face-off machine which can turn sort of easterners into westerners there are also elements that are just a bit farcical you know as martin said the fight scene is just bizarre it's you know there's these it almost seems like the cameramen were drunk it's you know you kind of wonder what they were doing with the effects it was a bit weird the uh, the slow motion wasn't it how it's deliberately exaggerated that bond gets the little capsule with the diamonds in it because in the next scene anyway, they look at the diamonds, him and Raoul together. It's not massively needed for the audience to understand. So I think it's interesting you said No Time to Die, Adam, some comparisons there. Uh, because when I was watching the scene back, uh, I did kind of get Safin vibes from Dr. Alvarez, where he's, where he's talking about how he's an artist. Personally, I felt like there was more character development and more backstory to Dr. Alvarez than there was to uh, to Safin, to be honest. It's true with that slow-mo, isn't it? it? It's almost like rendering the audience a little bit stupid, like, oh, if it was in normal time, we couldn't possibly have seen that Bond got that. I mean, it feels like this should be a proper mano a mano fight in the clinic where, you know, he's throwing vials of liquid and, and all the rest of it using the super magnets. But it's over in about 30 seconds and you just think, no, this could have been a proper one-on-one -on -one from Russia with Love style face-off between the two of you. And then, you know, you get this slightly comical run down the corridor as he's you know, trying to escape for the helicopter and then equally ridiculous the fact that Bond can use the uh, nitrous oxide canisters to blow an enormous hole in the wall, which which seems, again, very implausible. I found it quite amusing that the that small gas canister like blows a bigger hole in the wall than the tank does in GoldenEye. And then talking about the explosions, Jinx sets that explosion off, doesn't she? She sets the timer for three minutes, which I guess is a, another, yet another callback that we have. But then the screen time, for some reason, the three minutes turns into 30 seconds. Usually when there's a timer, actually you have more screen time, don't you, as the protagonist tries to escape. But Jinx doesn't even bother telling Bond, oh, I set an explosion in that room, you might not want to go in there. 
it's also a fairly rubbish explosion when it does come because Bond is in the room with it and he just kind of falls over a bit and then goes, um, you're right about timers as well. Do you remember Goldfinger when um, they're defusing the nuclear bomb at the end of it? And apparently three seconds is enough time for the, the CIA guys to get all the way down to the bottom of the vault. Also, those fight scenes in Los Organos do a little Brosnan uh, to show off two of his best comedy faces. There's his face when he's getting strangled, you know, when he sort of does a weird grip and kind of you know gets his double chins going and then there's his sort of when he's drenched he does a little spit out of water he loves just sort of standing there sodden and doing a little water feature so there is a little uh, community on bond twitter which is uh, the brosnan pain face which um they always delight in finding from his films the uh, the slightly more um over the top kind of agony shots that he gets yeah i do i quite enjoy his facial acting at the beginning of these scenes where it's kind of nonplussed isn't he when he visits raul in his cigar factory and the the old man is suspicious of him pointing his gun and, and brosnan just kind of sits down wondering well, why are you why are you pulling that gun on me yeah, everything in those scenes with raul is really good the dialogue is really good the, the way that they're using that sort of old cigar chat as a kind of metaphor for raul's background as a sleeper agent the way that the mistrust and the tension between those two is really played to the hilt. And we get that conflict in Raoul's character. You know, the fact that he's kind of sort of set up like a bit of a Kerim Bay, isn't he, with his costuming, the fact that he's got this sort of local factory front and he has this rich history as both a spy, but also a local patriot and businessman who's kind of our conduit to Cuban culture and history. It's just such a shame he's not given the same time that Kerim Bay was to really flourish. And yeah, sort of even the costuming of Bond in these scenes, like you really feel like he's incognito and off the grid and that it's sort of almost a proper spy movie and the settings feel authentically gritty and hot and grimy. It's a nice contrast actually in colour when he gets to the clinic and kind of the orange sandy walls of the clinic nicely contrast with his sharp suit at that point so uh, yeah it's just a shame they didn't they had these good environments and these good settings but then they were ruined slightly by the actual action that takes place you actually believe bond for a time as an ornithologist on holiday don't you the fact that he's not got the vodka martini he's just got the mojito but of course it all slides when jinx enters and the flirting is absolutely ridiculous between these two it's so on the note why are you even bothering flirting with these cheap bird and name puns and metaphors and it, it just sort of removes any sense of tension or sensuality as does the the sex scene which as we've sort of discussed before is so overt and on the nose that it just kind of doesn't feel very bondy and it I, I just don't feel like i need to see bond in action i feel when these things are suggested they're far more erotic and powerful and sexy what do we think of Mr. South African, anyway, on, on those sort of beachy scenes? Because he's kind of done away with very quickly. Um, what I do like about the scene is when he punches him and you've got the woman lying on the bed who does not flinch at all. I think that's some lovely acting there and lovely, again, lovely Brosnan facial expressions, just casually greeting her as, uh, as he punches this horrible South African dude. So, uh, yeah, a slightly weird character. I'm not sure he would fit in any other Bond film. Um, but yeah, I think he's, a, he's just a, a poor plot device, isn't he? Certainly, yeah. And in, in terms of clumsiness, I do want to give some credit to Halle Berry because I do think she's trying to bring a new energy to uh, to the Bond films. I think she brings a kind of, you know, a sassiness and a kind of self-confidence. We've had sort of female secret agent foils for Bond, but they tend to be quite serious and no nonsense and kind of very much eyes on the job. And actually, it is fun to have Jinx as a character who, like Bond, 
is sort of a bit funnier and up for a laugh and up for a bit of a cheap thrill on the side. It's kind of misserved by, you know, the carry-on moments of saluting as she jumps off in the bikini and, and the sort of nudge-nudge, wink-wink element of all of her dialogue. It's real. It's a real shame, really, isn't it, that the American Bond women don't seem to have such a great time. I think probably... Holly Goodhead is the only half decent American agent who works with Bond, but the uh, the others have been. I mean, uh, Moonraker is not a, not a brilliant film, uh, but the other American agents don't seem to uh, have great characters, do they? They weren't the suggestions that before Dying of the Day was released that there might be a kind of jinx spin-off, but then obviously this was deemed so bad that they they completely canned that idea. I'd be quite keen to have that now, really. Let's revisit it with Halle Berry slightly older and slightly more seasoned. Here's an idea. It could be a sort of surviving um, Bond women special whereby they sort of form their own Ocean's 8-style supergroup. It's like Jinx comes back, Anna de Armas comes back as Paloma, Waylin, Michelle Yeoh, she could be in there, Denise Richards. <laughs> Michelle Yeoh's in everything, isn't she? <laughs> She'd be jumping on that immediately. Not Jinx anymore. I'll always be a jinx to you. And now it's on to our main feature of the episode, For Your Ears Only, where we have the pleasure of talking 007 with some of the best members of the Bond community, as well as alumni who've actually worked on the films. But who entered the cubbyhole this time, Adam? This week, we were very privileged to welcome Kevin Todd Haug into the cubbyhole. So Kevin was the visual effects supervisor on Quantum of Solace. And he really gave us an insight into behind the scenes and the making of um, perhaps one of the more controversial uh, Bond films. Well, you're about to hear a little bit about why it turned out the way it did. So let's go over to Kevin. Well, yeah, actually, I used to have... I don't remember who made it, but there was a From Russia With Love uh, attache case that you could buy when I was a kid. You know, I had the knife that came out and the softens and the gas that would zap my dad and, you know, all that stuff. Um, so I do, re- and I remember Thunderball pretty clearly as a kid. I have to admit that the more years sort of also straddled my my adolescence, if you will. Um, so it was I, was, I was less interested, I think, during that period than I had been before. So I'm kind of a Connery, hard, hard, hardcore. Bar- Barbara used to say that she loved Roger Moore, but she hadn't really, she thought that Connery was sort of an asshole. Um, but then again, he did work on the only non-Broccoli uh, Bond movie. They, they kind of have an issue with him. Would it be fair to class you as, as a kind of early pioneer of um, visual effects, or, or was it something you kind of gradually worked into? What's interesting about visual effects is that it changes constantly. I mean, that's the, the essence of being a supervisor is that you have to train yourself constantly. There's no getting good at something and sort of leaning back on it. And you, every time you pick a technique for a movie, it is old hat and kind of silly looking by the time you're done with it. And, and so you have to sort of accept that, okay, this is going to be the best we can do for now. Let's go. And then you realize you could have done so much better two years later because there's better tech or, you know, whatever. I had some computer programming background. So my very first jobs were mostly um, oh, you know, commercial stuff, things like that, motion control things primarily. Eventually, I got closer and closer to set. I started doing TV stuff. I think Erie, Indiana was really my first series. Through that, I did some music videos, uh, met Sion Chafin, who introduced me ultimately to Fincher and um, you know, kind of snowballed from there. Eventually, I think after Panic Room, David didn't work for a while. And I ended up meeting up with uh, Forrester. Um, Mark and I did like five movies together. The way we ended up doing that was funny because I know that we all got interviewed by 
Barbara at least, if not Barbara and Michael, it was pretty clear that they were like, well, we have family, you know, you just can step in and we'll provide. And Mark was like, well, I have a family. So what, what are we going to do about that? So they, they accommodated, you know, Mark got his most important keys and they got their most important keys. And it actually worked out pretty good. The two tribes mel melded pretty well. Like, like Chris Corbold and I got to actually be pretty good friends. But I actually feel that that relationship is in, incredibly important. And, and visual effects job when it comes to these kinds of things is to support the special effects and the stunts as much as possible, not so much to drive it. Probably the biggest challenge um, on the show, so it's like the best and the worst of, of what we did was the skydiving. And that was sort of driven by Gary Powell coming to me and saying, I'm not hanging in from wires in front of a green screen. I'm just not doing it. You're going to have to come up with something better than that. So I, I said, okay, skydiving, what can we do? And we found out that that the big old simulator out in Bedford was uh, you know, publicly available to, to do it in. So we actually did, they skydived. Uh, our operator was skydiving, you know, he was on a, it was film, right? So it was an Airy 3 floating around with um, two other skydivers gripping him, you know, sort of helping him move around so that we could get the shots we wanted. I can remember once, I think it was Olga's stunt woman's shoe came off and got sucked into the fan and they pulled him out. And by the time they got it out of there, you know, it was like little pieces, you know. I, I can remember there was this moment when the, when the wardrobe people came up to me and said, she's wearing a cocktail dress. How can she do the skydiving with the, the dress around her head the whole time? I said, well, she's also wearing a parachute. Won't that kind of fix it? <laughs> and they were like, oh yeah. Okay. Fine. It was quite a rushed production, thanks to there was a writer's strike, um, we believe, sort of when they were scripting it. Um, how did this kind of affect your preparation and, and I guess completion time on the film? Typically on a movie, it, you know, a movie's a two-year process. Well, a Bond movie from soup to nuts, from the day that they say they're going to finish the script, which they never do, and they present it at Leicester Square, uh, is like 13 months. That's just the way it's done. I, I can remember Mark actually... I was sitting at some table and he's talking to Barbara and said, well, why don't you make your life a little easier and give yourself some time in post? And it was like, well, Cubby never needed more time. So this is what we do. You know? So mostly what you're seeing is a director's cut. There's, there's no futzing around, figuring out how to do it, testing it with audiences. It's just, there's, there's one screening that they do with, for friends and family and everybody writes down notes and talks and drinks and, you know, it's all very nice. And then everybody takes a lot of notes and that's the end of it. You've spoken about your working relationship with Mark Forster. Quantum of Solace is very different to any of the other James Bond films. Much leaner, much tougher, of course, partly, as we said, because of the, uh, the writer's strike. Uh, but how much uh, deliberation did you have with Mark about the, uh, the overall kind of direction and vision for the film? Interestingly enough, I think, you know, Mark, at least at the time, I'm, I'm watching his new films, I think he's sort of settling into a style. But at the time, he felt like he didn't want to settle into a style. He always wanted to try something different. And so every movie was different. So doing an action movie was like, yeah, let's do it. And I think sort of the Forrester process worked really well for that kind of, you know, three ring circus kind of thing that was going on at Bond. The, I, I started right the second there was anything to start on because there, there was this sense that we were trying to make a movie and half the time it, need, it should have been made in. So we were off and running. By the way, the, the writer's strike was always an issue, but... I've had some old timers come to me and say, it's always like this. The writer's strike's got nothing to do with it. They never finish the script. They're always changing along the way. It's just, just the way they do it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, and I, and I, I, I get that, you know, like something cool happens and they just kind of rewrite it as they go. It's kind of the way they've always done it. 
and of course you also worked with uh, very closely with Chris Corbold uh, and you were nominated for the the BAFTA of course uh, what was it like uh, working together with him you know he's the consummate pro I mean it's I I don't envy those guys you know people actually get killed when special effects go wrong right so it's it the level of professionalism required to like figure out how something that looks like total chaos is going to go off without looking like it was planned uh was it is it view to a kill is that the one or no license to kill um where they blow up these oil tank fuel tankers i was asking him about it i said that looks really big in that is that actually like because that's old enough i can imagine that's real and he was like oh yeah that was real he said you could feel the heat across the valley when the thing went off i've done little bits of fire and whatnot it's like elements and stuff and i hate it but you know you got to do it um so i'm very impressed when he gets it together we basically we would plan like i i a big believer in previs and other forms of planning to get really into how things ought to work and you know chris has his own sort of tools for that so we would actually work together on that we'd sort of plot out how the airplane sequence ought to look um and then uh put place cameras and then start to figure out with was is this going to be a rig is this going to be an actual airplane obviously daniel's never going to fly the dc3 that we take to mexico that that sort of stuff happens but there's also all the other issues of trying to make it make sense um there was a lot of fire in the you know the the baddies lair that needed to be sort of made to look a little special and we tried to figure some cool ways out to do that i mean i think in the end we decided that what he did looked pretty good <laughs> we weren't going to fool with it we we were going to try to come up with some sort of greenish tinge to it that made it look like it was evil but i think in the end it just wasn't worth the trouble it looked pretty good but there were things like someone coming to me and saying well he's going to hit his he's going to stick an axe in his foot um can we you know can we do that in visual effects and it's like well obviously you can do it in visual effects but i i, I look at chris and say well couldn't you put like a wax foot in there and he was like got it you know and he'd come back out in the middle, like an hour later there'd be a wax foot in the thing and an axe that would go in you know so we would we would try to make each other's lives easier um like he didn't have to do the blood i did the blood he did the axe i encouraged always to do things full scale if chris was saying full scale they'd come to me and ask if i couldn't do something about it i don't oh, know he's right do it full scale there's no question mm. <laughs> <laughs> Did you sort of have the advantage of spending a lot of time on location during the filming? And, and sort of what are your kind of favorite places and, and sort of memories if you did? Oh, yeah, there were we, we there were like what, seven countries or something. No, I, I was in most of them at some point or other. It was I would say Paranal was amazing to, to be in that place was really amazing. But I also felt really good because in Panama, I got whatever the Panama thing is. No, it's not a virus. It's I don't know what it is, but it look, feels like pneumonia. Um, and I was getting sicker and they kept talking about making me leave. And then eventually we got on the airplane and within five minutes of closing the doors, I felt like a human being. And by the time I got to Chile, I was running up and down the mountains because I'd been living on no oxygen at all for weeks. And suddenly that was just heaven for me. So, but I also have to admit, I got a, a warm place for, um, Northern Italy when we were doing, like we went to the Palio and then there was this crossing back and forth because we were in Siena a lot over the course of the production. In terms of the challenge level, which uh, which visual effects do you think were the, the most challenging to pull off for uh, for Quantum? Bar none, the the skydiving stuff was the hardest thing because it was literally groundbreaking. You know, like we it, how to do that was well understood, but actually doing it on a production schedule and knocking it out in a year was really crazy one of the one of the wackiest visual effects moments was when somebody realized that 
DC, sorry, Daniel Craig, and um, the, the two of them are having a beer in this this divey place in supposedly um, Bolivia. They they picked up a Bolivian beer someplace and were, were drinking the Bolivian beer with the label showing and everything. And the uh, Heineken people lost their minds. Um, and so we changed the labels on every single bottle. I was gonna. We were gonna ask actually about those. Those kind of very small and, and subtle and visual effects touches that, that are sort of outside of the action scenes, which we might not sort of notice. I mean, most of the stuff went according to plan because honestly, there just wasn't time for things to be out of plan. But there were. Um, there was a lot of, like I call it sweetening. Like he would jump off a balcony and run over there, and there's a cable to be removed. But because there's a cable to remove, we can do other things. And so we would like put bullet holes in the door as it went by, and tracer bangs off the side of the wall. Just kind of almost for the fun of it. Of course, I didn't sleep very much for the last two months, but we had a sign on the wall as you got out of the elevator that it said in big friendly letters, don't panic. There's, you know, we, we only have so many shots left to do in so many in so many days and they updated it every night at the end of the night. So you could sort of see that you had, oh, we still have 1200 shots to go and we have 12 days left, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, we did what we <laughs> had to do. They're both wonderful, Michael and Barbara, but Barbara has a style. I got to say, I've never worked with a producer quite like her. Um, and she's very matter of fact. She will spend the money, but she will challenge you on it. Um, she'll make the studio back down if they're wasting our time. I mean, she's just fearless. It sounds like there's a slightly different atmosphere on them. Um, for whatever reason than the not of a similar, I guess, big budget films. Did you find that? Was it was it something different and distinctive working on Bond as opposed to another major film, I guess? I mean, it's entirely different for working like any other movie of that scope. Um, typically, that a big movie like that would be a studio picture. And a studio picture would have a whole bunch of execs who are responsible for making sure that there's proper accounting and you know what's going on and somebody's changing something at the last minute. This is like the most expensive independent film ever made, right? And it's and it's being run by those two people. And if you need an answer right now, you go talk to them. And you know, this is all saying you can have it good, you can have it fast, you can have it cheap, but you have to pick two. Usually fast and good, i.e. money's not an object, is the realm of very short things like commercials. Right. Um, but that was that's the way a bond is. One day there was a little bit of confusion about what we were doing for this explosion. The baddie has, is holding a gun, waiting for Bond to come around the corner. An explosion goes off and kills him. And we all had been in the production meeting. We all had an idea of what we'd heard. And we came with three solutions on the day. There was a mask from the from the special effects from the makeup effects slash stunt guys. There was a, a special piece of wardrobe that ripped the guy's clothes off up upon explosion. We had um, a, a couple of cameras of our own there so that we could turn him into CG if we needed to. I mean, we were all there ready to go with our expensive toys that we had gotten together. I, I, I can only imagine that we all went to Barbara at some point and said, "Here's the new budget for that scene," and she was like, "Go." You know, we'll find out later which one works. <laughs> Somebody did a survey of how many cuts there are in a movie. It, apparently, Quantum is the cuttiest movie of all time. It has more cuts per minute than any other movie out there. I, I, is this true? It, I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe on a per minute basis, perhaps. Yeah, certainly yeah, yeah. not the most in total because Quantum's not very long, is it? <laughs> No, no. It, actually, the funny thing about Quantum is that, you know, Mark is kind of backwards from a lot of directors the way he makes um, his director's cut. 
most directors put everything in they shot in the director's cut and then they whittle it down to a watchable movie. Mark does the opposite. He throws out everything he doesn't think he wants or doesn't need. And he usually delivers something that's well under 90 minutes. And then he starts saying, okay, this is a little incomprehensible. We need to pad it out a little bit more. Maybe there's a line here that needs to be. And then it sort of swells up, but he really wants it to be a 90 minute movie. He didn't really get time to do the latter part. So he really, that's like the super lean Mark Forster director's cut you see there. Well, it is certainly the shortest Bond film of all time. So do you think Mark would have been very key then in terms of it being as cutty as it is? And, and I guess sort of very speculatively, had there been more time, might it have ended up being longer? It probably would have gotten a little longer. I mean, that's typically what he does. I mean, he makes it really tight. He, he figures out with what is the absolute skeleton of the movie. And then he gets has some time to sort of find where how to pace it a little bit more. So I'm sure it would have been like five minutes longer if we'd given a chance. Probably all would have been dialogue and it would have explained some things that most people are scratching their heads about. Bond's kind of celebrated for the physicality of his action sequences and, and particularly the chase scenes in, in Quantum feel very visceral. Um, but are there any that we might be surprised to learn sort of required more VFX to sort of fine tune and I guess complete than, than you'd think? The Garda sequence in particular, uh, I'm, I think Daniel went up there one day for some some stills. I mean, he didn't really work in, in the car at all. Uh, maybe, I think he went to Carrera. He never went to Garda. So that sequence where they're driving around, he, he's in the car a lot. You see him. But he's against a blue screen at Pinewood on a big steel deck that uh, Chris laid out, like he bolted steel plates to the floor. And they're yanking the car around as if it were in stunts but under controlled circumstances so when you see his head getting smacked around and dust flying around it's actually happening but it's happening under you know chris corbel nobody's going to die situation as opposed to like out on the road near garda someplace yeah no i, I remember wonderful things i can remember one day you know gary's i can't remember gary Pell's wife's name but she's this beautiful woman and she was you know stand in for for olga and they, they were doing the, the horrendous boat sequence martin it's a, a Simon Crane is out there every day. Somebody went to the hospital. It was just horrible, difficult stuff. And I remember walking in in Panama and everybody's around the bar and it just kind of feels like a movie set almost, except for that we're actually there actually getting drunk. And they, you know, I'm walking in and she turns around and she just, she lights up because I guess like Gary's behind me or something. And she has a scar, brand new, all stitches running across her face because she got hit by the boat to, you know, like the boat hit a wave and she was standing in it and he came up and smacked her in the face and she had to get all stitched up. And you've never seen anybody who was happier with themselves. You know, this is beautiful woman with her face all torn apart and she'd done it. You know, she'd been there, she did it. it. And it's kind of a metaphor for how we all kind of felt about it. It wasn't like it was actually easy, but it was so worth it. It didn't matter. In terms of the, uh, the legacy of Quantum, uh, of course, when it was first released, maybe critically slightly mixed reviews, um, what, were your, what are your thoughts on maybe detractors of the film? Because it must be quite difficult having worked so hard on something uh, to then see maybe some of the negative reactions. Actually, that's pretty common for visual effects people to work on movies that get mixed reviews. But um, I, I actually am happy that there's a fan base for it, to be perfectly honest. I, I, I kind of agree that it's a, it's a standout in its own way. Um, I think it was really, you know, Mark and Barbara and Michael sitting down and talking about what they wanted to do with the franchise at that point, you know, because it was right after Casino. 
and it was how to make it something a little different than the franchise had been in the past and how to do and so mark leaned into it and i i feel pretty good about that i mean i think they kind of maybe leaned back a little bit afterwards but that the idea that it really feels more like a mark forster film in some ways than any other bond film feels like a you know a martin campbell film or something you know they feel like bond films but this one feels also like a mark forster film so no i think it'll always have a standout i gotta give it that you know it's not like one of the ones that nobody remembers were even bond films like i had to remember license to kill was called license to kill you know i had to like check it out but um no i think it'll always kind of be one of the ones that sticks out for better or for worse you know i mean there's no humor in it it doesn't fit a lot of the boxes you know it just doesn't but um but it was a real action film so you know that's something so that was kevin todd haug really fascinating to get his thoughts on quantum uh, i feel like we've redressed the balance slightly very negative towards that film in the cubby hole so uh, it's great to get his perspective on actually working on it and uh, perhaps the most surprising thing for me was the uh, the writer's strike that he spoke about how uh, perhaps it wasn't quite as crippling as everyone assumes and that Mark Forster would probably have made a very short and punchy film uh, even without uh, all of the time in the world, so to speak. Uh, so uh, even though it does have it, its detractors, including us, uh, maybe Mark Forster was the right director at that specific time to make that kind of uh, bookend that the, uh, the producers were looking for after Casino Royale. Yeah, it is fascinating, isn't it? Because we talked about this with Tomorrow Never Dies was also the victim of a short production schedule and a writer's strike. And that's one of our favourites. And so we sort of suspected beforehand where you can't fully blame the writer's strike for the way these things turn out. But it is fascinating with Quantum because it does really have its defenders. And every time I go into it, I really do want to like it. And I want to see in it what everyone who likes it sees in it. I've not got there yet, but no, I think certainly after talking with Kevin about it and learning a few little things about what the methodology going into making the film was, yeah, I would be interested in taking another swing at it very soon, I think. Bond, I need you back. I never left. So next up, we have the 007 Best segment where we decide on our top seven ranking in various Bond-themed categories. And this time... We're taking a suggestion from one of our viewers, actually, and we're going to count down our favourite Roger Moore get-ups throughout his tenure as James Bond. Uh, so we've got a nice mixture of sophistication and silliness from this era. So let's start with number seven. So in at number seven, um, one of the most, of course, all of Roger's outfits seem to be iconic these days. But of course, from The Spy Who Loved Me, we have his very dapper naval uniform, which is seen towards the end of the film. It's always great to see Bond in the kind of military regalia. Yeah, it's kind of a rare treat, actually, Bond in his naval uniform. I mean, Connery got to do it and you only live twice. Brosnan gets an opportunity and Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, but this is interesting, the fact that he's in battle dress for this uh, whole liparous sequence. Um, and, of course, the final encounter with Stromberg in Atlantis. He's almost uniformed up to reflect the heightened stakes of this finale. It's the longest we ever see Bond in military uniform. It really brings command and authority. Um, but, of course, it's not his only naval uniform in the film. He's also in full naval dresser for that great briefing scene it's a lovely book ending for a very aquatic bond film but we get the naval uniform almost to symbolize that yeah i think that scene with jeffrey Keane's freddie gray character that stands out for me i think with the with roger in the naval outfit uh the fact that he, he's with his boss but he is uh you get the a sense of 
pomp and ceremony, don't you? And that uh, maybe these these characters are kind of on a level playing field, talking to each other in that scene. And then, yeah, at the end where he has to defuse the bomb, uh, that's uh, an iconic sequence. So you, I tend to remember what he's wearing in that scene as well. So yeah, really, really great to see Bond in his Navy get up. I also love the fact that only Roger Moore in that outfit could pull off being able to go on a wet bike in the middle of the ocean without getting a splash of water on him and still look cool. Nobody else could have pulled that scene off. You know, it kind of establishes his positioning within, you know, the ranks because we see the other naval officers and, you know, on the submarine, it's kind of he is the main man. He is the the person that everybody's looking to to save the day. Yeah, I think this costume, like the film itself, is kind of re-establishing Roger Moore's bond after his first two films as being more in the actor's true image and the way he wanted to play the character. And the fact that even when he's dressed at his most serious, he's not beyond a quip or a silly moment. You know, it's both a nice callback to Bond's naval hermitage from Fleming, but it's also allowing Roger Moore to do Roger Moore stuff even when he's buttoned up and dressed to the nines. Number six. And in at number six, it is the Octopussy Safari Suit. Now, Roger Moore wore numerous safari suits across his runner's bond. I guess this one is the most iconic due to the fact that he's wearing it in that great um, comedy escape sequence from the Monsoon Palace. Um, We've just talked about the fact that he doesn't get a splash of water on that naval outfit, despite being on a wet bike for about a mile. This suit actually gets a decent battering, even though it's a very comical sequence, you know, telling the tiger to sit, the snake to hiss off. By the time we get to that final great gag, well, actually, I'm on the economy tour. Um, it's appropriately sort of soiled and grubby. And so this, this suit really is given a bit of a workout in this. I also just love, again, only Roger Moore of all the Bond actors could pull off a safari suit. You know, you can't really imagine Connery or Lazenby or Dalton or, you know, and it feels like the safari suit is very much of its tone. You know, it feels like it's a very 70s or 80s kind of outfit. And, it, and you know, and, and again, you know, we've, we've also spoken before the fact that Roger Moore, he always seems to be wearing these very heavy suits in very, you know, inappropriate climates. You know, he's almost anybody else. You know, if it was me, I'd be sweating horrendously. And, and it, it, this is actually one of those moments where... Bond is actually in an appropriate dress for the occasion because, you know, any other outfit and he would be not only slowed down by it, but also, you know, it'd be very uncomfortable in that heat. There is a safari suit in The Man with the Golden Gun, isn't there, where he's in Hong Kong and Macau. But that's quite a lot. That's a bit larger, I think, whereas this one is a little bit more appropriate, as you say, Phil, for the for that very hot Indian weather. This one looks a bit more casual, but it's still somehow Roger really inhabits it so well. And, uh, and yeah, it, uh, it certainly is quite messy, isn't it, by the end? Although we've got to be careful with this, you know, the bloopers. We've got to be careful. Is it really wet at the end or is it dry? We've got to be careful. I think this one is definitely wet at the end. There's also the question of where he gets this from, because, of course, he's, he's been captured by Gobinda and brought to the castle, and yet he somehow has a tuxedo and a safari suit with him. So it's good that... Uh... Gabinda packed a little overnight bag for Roger before he uh, carted him off, isn't it? This is actually, this outfit, a collaboration uh, between two um, of the sort of more famous and prolific designers of the Roger Moore uh, outfits. The shirt is Frank Foster's creation. who was Roger Moore's shirt maker, both for his personal life and all of his Bond films. Uh, and he actually made more shirts for the Bond franchise than anyone else. Yet the trousers are tailored by Douglas Hayward. He was a kind of celebrity tailor to the stars who did all of Roger Moore's suits for his final three Bond films. And interestingly, it was the character inspiration for a fellow customer, Michael Caine's portrayal of Alfie. 
number five. And in at number five, we have the black polo neck of Live and Let Die. So this one, of course, as I always try and say, Live and Let Die, one of my favourite Bond films, not one of Phil or Adams. Um, but this is uh, iconic, I feel, this turtleneck. I'm not sure anyone else could really pull, certainly nowadays, not, not, not many people can pull off a, a turtleneck quite as well as uh, Sir Raj did in this film. Uh, but it's maybe not the actual film appearance of this that uh, that really resonates with me. I feel like the uh, the promotional stills for Live and Let Die are what you remember, isn't it? The uh, the scenes with Baron Samadhi at the beginning, and then, of course, when he's defeating Mr. Big at the end with his, uh, with his watch gadget. So, yeah, I think it's the photography from this film is what I remember of this, uh, this great outfit. It is just this iconic image of, of Roger Moore with the, uh, I think it's with his... Not with the signature Walther, but with um, a Smith and Wesson, or, or you know that kind of very classic um, sort of more American styled gun. But he's in the he's in the the roll up polo and uh, sorry in the roll up turtleneck, and it's it is just such an iconic shot. You know, we always look back at these iconic shots of every Bond actor. You know, you look back at Connery in the uh, the tux from um, Doctor No or in his Goldfinger suit, and this is one of the real iconics of, of Roger Moore's era it's it's you know it and it was his introduction to the Bond community it was his you know it was his very first um Bond film it's quite interesting though with this costume because we've talked a bit about live and let die drawing inspiration from sort of hard-edged American independent cinema of the time most notably black exploitation plays a big role but actually the look of this costume very much recalls Steve McQueen in Bullet which is very deliberate and also the size of the gun he's using that Smith and Wesson or whatever it is that's a very deliberate nod I think to Dirty Harry and Clint Eastwood so it's almost this outfit is kind of very subtly aligning Bond to that new generation of action heroes in cinema you've got to ask yourself one question do I feel lucky well, do you, punk? In at number four, we have, again, going back to The Spy Who Loved Me, um, Roger Moore's black dinner jackets from the scenes in Cairo when Bond and Anna Amasova are enjoying an, an evening out. And obviously we, we get our first introduction to um, Jaws as well. And, and again, we've kind of mentioned this in previous episodes, just the heat and the pressure of, of being in that um, environment. But, you know, Roger can carry off the, you know, the very heavy kind of almost three-piece dinner jacket to perfection. And, and you know, he, he never shows any signs of sweat at all. And again, it's kind of every Bond actor has to have that iconic dinner jacket. And I think this is kind of, you know, the one from The Spy You Love Me, that's the one, certainly the 70s dinner jacket that we all remember. Yeah, I think it's the fact that he has to go running around the, well, not, not the pyramids, other the, the massive pillars. It's the fact that he actually, you would just expect him to be playing some blackjack or something uh, but he actually has to go around and uh, and thwart jaws out in the uh, the heat of egypt so yeah i think uh, again iconic photography of this era and this this film and yeah it's something one of uh, the most memorable i think of uh, of roger's suits yeah, absolutely. And I think this is the first time Roger Moore gets to wear the, the iconic black dinner jacket and tuxedo of Bond. I think he gets a white one, doesn't he, in, in The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, and it's, of course, saved for this scene so that he looks his absolute best squaring off both with Anya Amasova properly and with Jaws, who would become, I guess, Roger's most iconic villain. Um, you're right, the colour of it as well just stands out beautifully, both in that sort of Calibre nightclub and against those sort of washed out desert stands. It's brilliant cinematography uh, from Claude Renoir, I think, wasn't it? 
and designed, we should say, by Angelo Roma, who actually was inspired by a, a bit of military traditional tailoring uh, for the film, but also with um, those big peak lapels were apparently a very 70s touch. So again, this is an outfit that combines tradition with modernity. Number three. And in at number three, we're back to live and let die for the Chesterfield Blazer. This is the Navy Cashmere double-breasted number specifically, uh, which Bond wears for his arrival in New York and his first square-offs with Whisper's Killer Cabbie and Mr Big's Harlem Goons. Also, of course, the outfit he's wearing when he initially attracts Solitaire. Uh, so this is a creation of Cyril Castle, who uh, did Roger Moore's suits for both his first two Bond films and had actually been Roger's um, professional tailor long-term through his days on The Saints and the Persuaders. Uh, and of course, of course, this is Bond, Roger Moore's first proper Bond suit. We've seen him in a dressing gown, but now we see him in this. And it really does, I guess, offer the quintessence of Roger Moore's style in the role, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always look back on the Bond era and there's always a certain outfit that Bond wears that I always think I would love to own that. You know, and obviously I, I never will have the chance to do that. But, you know, you, you always look as a fan and you think that is how Bond should look. And, and in Live and Let Die, that Chesterfield jacket is always the one that I think I would love to. I mean, obviously, you know, it, it's very problematic, the fact that he is a white man in Harlem. And we've spoken before about the fact that, you know, he's, he's in, it's, it is a bit of an awkward scene. But he, he again, he, he looks very, I hate to say the word debonair, but he, look, he just looks so good in that jacket. And he looks so you get the feeling that he is meant to be in in that suit and it's it's just it's almost like it was made for him yeah i think it's interesting that you say that phil because i'd say that because it's roger's first bond i'd say he personally is not exuding much confidence in the role yet but actually his um, james bond as a character certainly in the the scenes in harlem you feel like he is exuding that confidence uh, which plays a nice contrast doesn't it to it to where he is and the situation that he finds himself in um so yeah and when he introduces himself as uh, as bond to solitaire uh, i always remember that scene but it also allows him to get away with some bizarre activities you know who asks for like a stuffed snake in a voodoo shop to be gift wrapped like who who on earth does that? And yet a man wearing that suit and that jacket, you're not going to question it. You just yeah, of course he wants it gift wrap. Yeah, look, this is a man who knows style. Um, and the outfit is used to distinguish him, isn't it, from Roger Moore, from Connery and Lazenby. Um, it's interesting he wears a striped tie with this. And I don't think the other two ever wore striped tie. They were always plain. And he makes a real meal later on with lighter, doesn't he, Roger Moore, being quite fashion conscious and picking ties that will work for him. And so it almost sets him up almost as a little bit more roguish and a little bit more fashion conscious you know much more of a sort of east beat bond than uh, the sort of more action-oriented ruthless assassins that have come before him and again nobody else of all the bond actors could really pull off those sort of ties other than roger moore it felt very of its time but it felt like he was he was making that his own and you know it felt very appropriate for the character to wear those sort of outfits and again the chesterfield feels very big and it feels almost oversized for Roger you know he's he's very I mean he was a year older than Sean Connery but he looks really good for the role he looks really good you know in in how he wears that and it's it's just a really nice way that 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 scene comes together I think they should have uh, continued more of the Diamonds Are Forever theme and the end of Live and Let Die should have just been him going back to the occult voodoo shop picking up the now gift wrapped snake would have been a great ending to the other film I feel do you think he then uses it as a present for Whisper as a kind of apology for locking him in that canister for so long? Number two. And in at number two, the runner-up for Roger Moore's get-ups is the, of course, the iconic ski suit 
from The Spy Who Loved Me, made famous, made more famous by Mr. Alan Partridge. Maybe the only hideous entry on the list, but it needs to be here, doesn't it? Horrible banana suit. Um, but it's I, I can't imagine that scene without it. Nicely goes together with the, uh, the black jumpsuits with lemon piping of the bad guys. What, what else can we say? It's, a, it's an awful but brilliantly awful suit. Oh, yeah. I mean, this this is complete state of the 70s. I mean, it's, you know, you again, you wouldn't get away with this type of outfit in any other Bond film. But because it's The Spy Who Loved Me, because it's Roger, you know, it's peak Roger Tainment. It's, you know, he's, he's just, he's very comfortable in the role now. And he knows, you know, as, as Alan says, he always with a lighter. And, uh, you know, and then he's, he's off to do his mission and, you know, to kill the bad guys in, in the only way that uh, the Bond knows how. And that's in, you know, in very over the top fashion. And, you know, he's doing his backflips in a bright yellow banana ski suit. And he's doing, you know, all these actions that no, no other Bond. I mean, you can't imagine Sean Connery doing any of these actions. You can't imagine, you know, you might be able to see Brosnan getting away with this, but any other Bond actor could not have pulled these sort of outfits off. But I was going to say, Roger, you can't imagine Roger doing it either because he didn't. It's <laughs> all the, the stunt doubles. That's why they picked the yellow hideous colour, isn't it? <laughs> Distracts you from the, the stuntman's well, face. Well, yes. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's it's not subtle, but then, you know, you kind of love it because of that. You know, it's it, even with the NC where you've got the Union Jack um, parachute, it's it's all meant to be over the top and it's just all good fun. Yeah, that's right. We, we talk all the time about Pete Roger Moore is when they get the balance right of action, humour and spectacle. And this outfit is the thing providing the humour in all of this, isn't it? The most ludicrous costume at the centre of the most incredible opening sequence. Uh, it's made by Bogner, the luxury clothing brand, who also made all the Russian suits. But there is just something fundamentally hilarious about seeing Roger Moore miming skiing to that back projection, looking like a massive banana wearing a red backpack and hat. And yet it still makes that real stunt work of Rick Sylvester, that great filming that Willie Bogner sort of manages to pull off on skis. It still makes all of that look incredible because it stands out so much. So it serves such a brilliant dual purpose. Number one. Taking the top spot, perhaps for some it may seem a bit of a shock entry, but for us, we always come back to um, Octopussy when we're defending Bond films. It's one of our kind of underrated gems. It is Roger Moore's, again, iconic white dinner jacket. It's, it's of course, in the iconic backgammon scenes where Roger and, uh, sorry, where Bond and Kamal Khan are facing off against each other. And Roger Moore, not as uh, in the peak of physical fitness that he once was in Live and Let Die or in, you know, in The Spy Who Loved Me. He's getting on a bit by this point, but he can still pull off the dinner jacket. And again, very few actors can pull off a white dinner jacket, but, you know, Roger is the man to do it in these scenes. Yeah, this is another Douglas Hayward creation accompanied by a Frank Foster shirt. Um, it's the ultimate outfit of Bond's amazing Indian adventure, isn't it? But also a great outfit for Roger Moore's autumnal Bond, who even in India is wearing the final word in high style. It just allows him to pop out as the epitome of class and sophistication against a number of various backdrops, actually. It, it's the longest serving um, white dinner jacket across the film than, than any of Bond's previous ones. Um, it's not only beating Kamal Khan at backgammon, it's surviving a tuk-tuk chase. Uh, it's used to seduce Magda as well when they're back in the hotel. Um, I just love this one. I think Roger Moore just looks every inch Bond in this. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it works great with the, the some of the props that they have as well. It works nicely with the, the Fabergé egg 
that's a that's a great photograph from Octopussy, and also works quite nicely in the if you remember the Q scene with VJ Ambrotrage, uh, where Bond decides to well, he takes his jacket off, doesn't it? Because it's been uh, it's been destroyed in the previous battle. Uh, but then even that just that very crisp white shirt nicely contrasts with uh, with VJ's jacket as well. So I think it works well with the props and the uh, the setting, the environment that they have. Yeah, and, and we don't see the white dinner jacket in Bond again for a very long time. I think the next one is Daniel Craig Inspector when he's on the train with Madeline. So, you know, again, the costuming, I guess, trying to add greater weight and import to that scene than you perhaps felt it had. But I feel like the great iconic Bond moments are white dinner jacketed, of course, the opening of Goldfinger when it's underneath the wetsuit. Um, of course, you know, there's also his jacket, which gets um, battered by high fat sumo wrestlers. Uh, he wears one later on meeting Stacy at Zorin's stud farm. Um, Connery gets another one when he's gambling in Vegas, but none of them quite have the impact of this now. And when Connery wore it in Goldfinger, which kind of it just puts the two right up there on a level plane. Yes, well, you wouldn't have a smaller piece of thread than that, would you? Curious, somebody seems to have stuck a knife in my wallet. Oh, they missed you. What a pity. So it's on to our next segment, the James Bond Film Club. Last time we had Dalton's underrated Disney adventure. Not his last Disney adventure, of course, but uh, but this time we're back to the globetrotting Bond actor. Who have we got, Adam? Thank you very much. So this week we're looking at Universal Soldier. No, not that one. So who's still interested in the post-Bond career of George Lazenby? Yep, thought so. So this film was actually his 1971 follow-up to Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And if you remember, Lazenby, when he left the role of Bond, thought that the character was on the way out and the films were going to end in the wake of Easy Rider and the American New Wave. And so interestingly, this film sees him playing kind of a real-life Bondian character who is seduced by the hippie lifestyle of post-60s swinging London. Uh, and in it, Lazenby plays Riker, who is an arms dealer uh, who's come out of retirement when his colleague Jesse brings him into a deal to arm a revolution in an unnamed African nation. However, over the course of the film, Riker grows increasingly disillusioned and morally troubled with this, and he goes AWOL from the arms deal, and he eventually bunks up with this strange intellectual set that weirdly includes a young Jermaine Greer in the cast. Uh, and he ends up falling in love with a young girl played by Christy Townsend, who incidentally lays and be married in real life three years later. However, of course, as the film goes on, he can't escape the past and both Jesse, his colleague, and the African revolutionaries he was supposed to be arming both come looking for him. Uh, it's a really curious film, this one. It's the last film directed by Cy Enfield, who was an interesting Hollywood director who was exiled uh, by the House Un-American Activities Committee and who then went on to make Zulu in the UK, the great Michael Caine war film. Um, but he knew Lazenby previously because he directed the famous Fry's Chocolate Ad where Lazenby was the beefcake. Um, and I have to say, everything good in this film is from Cyan Field's direction. He kind of achieves that handheld spontaneity, the disconcerting jump cutting, and the gritty mood of the US and French New Wave films that were inspiring him. Um, however, the film is basically virtually plotless from a writing point of view. It's a series of very forgettable episodes, uh, excluding some kind of fun scenes where we're seeing the, the weaponry sales from the arms deal to like classical music. There's a good bit with ho hovercrafts and the Blue Danube. But the whole film kind of depends on the mystery and the charisma of its main character to sustain it which sadly neither Lazenby or the largely improvised script deliver. He's since said that they were all basically smoking wacky-backy while they were making this and making it up as they went along, and my word does it show. Um, it was fairly 
pretty well reviewed at the time, but it was a complete bomb at the box office. And this is the film that then kind of consigned Lazenby to the wilderness. It's not one I'd ever recommend this, but it is on YouTube. And if you do want to join the dots um, of Lazenby's career, it does answer a lot of the questions as to why, you know, his film career went the way it did after Bond. That complete lack of foresight on his part as to what was going to remain trendy in film just completely served him like an absolute stinker. I must admit, this is one of those films that I've never actually kind of, it feels like it's something that's been lost in the ether of, uh, you know, popular culture i don't know is it one of those films that's going to kind of gain a cult following do you think or is it one that's best forgotten no it's i think there's a reason it's been forgotten and as i say it's kind of interesting because it does sort of show you why lazenby went off and had to basically globetrot to do you know a number of kind of genre films after this it was this big claim to being a proper actor that who could make you know proper arty movies and it just completely falls flat yeah very odd that you mentioned did you say Jermaine Greer was in this I'm now just picturing her as in Honor Majesties as one of the angels of death that would have been a very different film wouldn't it yeah yeah it's the actual Jermaine Greer in this I thought it was a mistake as well but no she does turn up um it does sort of beg the question what George Lazenby and Jermaine Greer would ever have found to talk about offset and he's he's actually a fan of her he said he really enjoyed acting with her because she was very different from the actresses that he'd worked with up to that point there's a lot of looking moody in fields after he's had a sort of lonely espresso in soho that's the level of character depth that we go to in this film i'm sorry i was so rude about what a baronet is you gave a very accurate description and now we head to our next segment it's phil's bloopers Everyone's favourite segment. Uh, this time, are the, are the bloopers as small as Nick Nick or as large and looming as Christopher Lee? Well, let's find out. What have we got, Phil? As you intimated, we are looking back this week at The Man with the Golden Gun. For most people, the most infamous one is, of course, the infuriating slide whistle that we get during the um, you know, quite famous barrel roll stunt where Bond and Sheriff J.W. Pepper are trying to chase uh, Scaramanga and Nick across the uh, the river. And, and obviously Bond does the iconic barrel roll flip of the AMC. Double O Kevin got in touch on Twitter as well to say that one of the more famous Bond gaffes is at the start of the film where Bond is fighting the uh, the goons. And as they brash into one of the mirrors, we can actually see a reflection of the film and the camera crew. We also get a few slightly ridiculous moments. So when Scaramanga is proudly proclaiming to Bond that only he and Nick Nat live on the remote island towards the end of the film, he actually forgets the fact that the world's busiest technician is also there. Of course, we see him get rather unceremoniously thrown into one of the vats. One of the things that always stands out to me as well is the fact of how on earth does Bond change so quickly into his waxworks own suits? You know, he's got to do that very quietly, particularly because Nick Knack and Scaramanga are watching him like a hawk. They're trying to find him. And, uh, and you know, and how does he do that turn as well? You know, not only has he managed to jettison his own clothing without being spotted, he's also able to sort of do the world's most unsubtle turn towards Scaramanga before shooting him. You know, he does it so slowly that Scaramanga has at least 10 minutes to be able to realise what's happening. Of course, we've also got moments um, of continuity areas. So during the car chase between Bond and Scaramanga, the villain's car has a noticeable dent. Um, in the lower passenger side door, but seconds later that disappears. At the end of the fight scene at the karate school, 
the final man who's brought to Bond by the two girls um, clearly has his Karategi top undone. Uh, but when there's a cut between Bond and the uh, the villain, we actually see that it's then belted up again. When Bond jumps into J.W. Pepper's uh, brand new car that is test driving from the car dealership, um, we can clearly see that the passenger window is down. But when he goes through the glass plated window, we see that it's back up again. Um, and speaking of the uh, slightly ridiculous car chase, when Bond and Pepper jump over the bridge, we see this slightly theatrical um, leap of J.W. Pepper into the back seat. Now, that is quite a small car, and J.W. Pepper is not exactly a uh, small man, let's say. And, of course, if you are eagle-eyed, you'll also note that um, many of the cars obviously use stunt drivers, and they actually had to use dummy steering wheels. So in some shots, you can see there are actually two steering wheels in some of the vehicles to denote that a stunt driver was being used. Um, and perhaps one of the more unusual um, continuity errors is at the very beginning when Nick Knack is at his console, obviously infamously watching Scaramanga go through the funhouse and he's switching between cameras. When we see that the cameras are constantly panning from side to side, you'll actually note that a lot of Nick Knack's screens are showing static shots of only one angle of the filming. So they obviously didn't match up to what was being shot at the time. Thanks for those, Phil. I, I do take issue with one of those. You say um, Scaramanga says only he and Nicknack live on the island, and that um, excludes the world's most, uh, the world's busiest technician. Maybe he doesn't live on the island. Maybe he's just got a commute there every day. Uh, you know, he's got to go all the way from Phuket or something on his own boat. Maybe he has to you know, pay to get a plane over every single day. And it's, you know, I, I can't, it must have some sort of non-disclosure agreement with Scaramanga where he doesn't disclose his journey or any of his activities to any of his loved ones. Because, you know, it, it must have a, a pretty lonely life if he's got to go to Scaramanga's island every day. Yeah, and that's, that's Scaramanga's version of a prank is he's kind of blown up the commuter plane a few times and he's had to stay on the island overnight. Do you think he largely works from home and he's only turned up that day because he's heard Brit Eklans on the island? Having fun in the sun, good night? Yes, I could stay here forever. So it's on to my segment, which is Delve Deeply, and this time we're delving deeply into Spain. Now, Spain actually makes a few very fleeting appearances on screen in the early Bond films. In From Russia With Love, if you recall the scene where Bond, Kerem Bey and Tanya make their underground escape with the Lector, they get diverted slightly by a mischief of rats, uh, you can double check that is the correct plural, running through the underground basilica. Apparently that had to be filmed in Spain because there were some problems, some legal problems with allowing some wild brown rats to be running around in the UK. And they obviously didn't want to do it in the actual system in Istanbul either. So not that we'd know it, but that part, those few seconds of the rats was filmed in Spain. And You Only Live Twice, part of the Little Nelly helicopter duel was filmed in the skies of Spain doubling for Japan. That was above the Sierra Nevada mountains near Granada. And in my research, I also found that Bond apparently meets a Spanish contact in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, although I can't quite remember that scene myself. So uh, do get in contact with the show if you know about that one. I assume it was filmed in Portugal alongside the other scenes of that film. So we have to wait until For Your Eyes Only for Spain to appear in the script of a Bond film, Gonzalez's Villa, 
where Melina Havelock takes the revenge for her murdered parents and then makes her escape alongside Bond in the hideous Citroen 2CV. But as we discovered back in series two, episode number eight, I think, our delve deeply into Greece, that part was actually filmed in Corfu. So it's not until the Brosnan era that we get to see Spain in all its glory or part of its glory in The World Is Not Enough. The opening of that film, of course, is in Bilbao, Bond walking the streets in and around the Guggenheim Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art, which had opened in 1997, so just a few years before that film's release. And you can still visit the museum, 16 euros for adults and children absolutely free. And Bond also makes his famous descent from the window in that opening, making his escape from the fictional Swiss bank. But in reality, that's actually a law office. So I'm not sure whether you can visit the location itself, but it is certainly very visible from street level. And then there are two other locations of note in The World Is Not Enough. Firstly, we have Los Cajones de la Mayades, a beautiful rock formation where Electra King visits in her helicopter the pipeline, which is supposed to be in between Turkey and Azerbaijan, but actually located just outside the city of Cuenca, almost equidistance between Valencia and Madrid. So that's around a two kilometer walk that you can make through those rock formations and very well signposted according to the TripAdvisor reviews. And secondly, the Badenas Reales, that's the open expanse of land that we see when Bond first encounters Dr. Christmas Jones. So there's not a lot of tourist things to do there, but it is another location that is technically accessible to all of you Bond wanderers out there. And finally, we have the scene that we were talking about at the beginning of this episode. In Die Another Day, Spain doubles for Cuba. The city of Cadiz, to be precise, stands in for Havana. So you can visit the Castillo de San Sebastian. That's the clinic island, although it's not actually an island. Or you could go to the exterior of the cigar factory, which is actually a covered market, the Mercado Central de Abastos. So that's Spain, a rich culture, beautiful architecture, but perhaps not fully explored by the Bond universe as yet. So lots of potential, I feel, for Bond 26 and beyond in Spain. Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. So next up we have Q branch. the questions branch. What did we have this time, Phil, from our audience, our cubbies out there? To kick us off though, this week, we had a question that we actually posed to Bond Twitter um, that was linked to a 007 post. So um, apart from being the main man himself, obviously, apart from being 007, what would be your dream 007 job if you could work on the franchise? Um, for me, of course, it would be either being in continuity, complaining about the car engine sizes or, you know, being one of the stunt personnel, being able to to do, you know, all those exciting jumps and, and vehicle stunts that we often um, see as part of the, the kind of Bond staple. But for you guys, what is your dream 007 job, of course, excluding the main man? I guess the car stunts spring to mind, don't they? You'd love to be, you know, sort of behind the wheel of a Bond car, just sort of, you know, taking on the big jumps or speeding around the corners or whatever you. Uh, wardrobe, I'd, I'd work on them. the actress's wardrobe, definitely. I'd, I'd be the underwear wrangler. Yeah, I'm not sure I could top that. <laughs> Does it have to be a behind-the-scenes fill, or are we talking about characters? Maybe, I think I've said in the past, I'm going to keep it realistic. I want to, I'm aiming for Bill Tanner. 
when uh, when Rory Kinnear has finished. I think also, you know, being part of Q's team would be quite cool as well, you know, working on the gadgets or, although I think it'd probably become a bit of a health and safety nightmare if, you know, you're getting squeezed up against phone boxes and, uh, you know, getting blasted across the room as we famously see in GoldenEye. So I look a bit similar to Tobias Menzer, so it might be more of his, more of an, an inept version of Tanner. Yeah, I mean, Tobias never got beyond Casino Royale after Bond nearly had a heart attack or whatever it was. I think they should do one thing, like a, a smaller sort of one-scene gag version of what we do with Jaws, whereby there's a henchman, a random anonymous henchman who has a kind of Mitchell and Webb, I'm the bad guy moment and just decides to help Bond at the last minute and then just runs off. Cheers, mate. And our next question, so Richie got in touch with us on Twitter. So, of course, in our 007 Best this week, we looked at Roger Moore's best outfits. Richie wants to know what we think is actually the worst outfit of the entire Bond franchise. So he was suggesting that Connery's um, Miami outfit in Goldfinger, where he's in that sort of bizarre kind of blue towel look where it's the sort of blue shorts and the very heavy blue top polo shirt is, is quite a, a poor entry. But is there anything that we think is perhaps worse than that? I'm, I was struggling to think of anything, but, um, you know, maybe the gorilla suit from Octopussy, is that a pretty bad entry? Possibly. I'm thinking also the poncho from uh, Moonraker and maybe the Lawrence of Arabia get-up from The Spy Who Loved Me. Just those Roger Moore moments which didn't chart uh, this week because they're just one scene and complete jokes. I think you also have to consider the, uh, you know, the things that haven't aged well as well. I mean, a lot of the outfits in A View to a Kill, you know, the, the 007 tracksuits that uh, that Tibbet and Bond wear during the uh, the horse stud farm is, is also quite embarrassing. I mean, his jockey outfit is pretty horrendous, but I know Adam had that on his top 10 list, so... I love that jockey outfit. The one I hate from a video kill, I think you both voted for, which is his idiot snowboarding outfit with that awful Parker hood. The one I always think looks the least cool on Roger Moore is, is that sort of green jacket and the kind of beige trousers he's, he's in at um, the clothes of a view to a kill. You know, when he's sort of down the mine and fighting Zorro, he just looks like he's just come out of a retirement home. Yeah, it's hard to tell. He's so old and creaky at that point, but he could be wearing something good and it wouldn't look good, would it? So... Yeah, I think that highlights his uh, his old men bond at the end. No, 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 stop getting bond wrong! Stop getting bond wrong! So we move to the final segment of the episode, and it is, of course, the quiz. And um, because of the, the controversy of our previous quizzes, we're going to make sure that uh, it's all above board this time. So I'm using the the top trumps cards, the uh, the specific quiz cards here. So it's going to be as, as fair as it possibly can be. Uh, we're going to have six rounds. In turn, each of you will get to decide between two different categories on two of the different uh, cards. So, so completely fair. Uh, so please send your complaints to the uh, the top trumps company if there are any inconsistencies. So let's uh, let's start with round number one. And uh, how about uh, Adam? Shall we start with you? Would you like cards and games or enemy vehicles? Cards and games. Casino Royale. How much do the players have to pay to buy into the poker game in Casino Royale? I think the buy-in's $10 million. Very well done. Yeah, $10 million. Correct currency as well. 1.2. Adam, uh, so that leaves us round one. Phil, you get the enemy vehicles, the men with the golden gun. And how does Scaramanga escape in his AMC Metador? Well, that's it has its own, it's a plane basically. So he is able to, or knickknack rather, is able to create the uh, 
the wings and the, the biplane as such, so he's, he's able to escape as a as a kind of car come plane hybrid. Okay, well done. Yeah, that's he converts it into an aeroplane. That's the correct answer. Well done, Phil. Uh, so one each. And round number two, this time, Phil, you get the first pick. Uh, would you like watchers or distinguishing features? I think watchers might be quite a broad. So we'll go distinguishing features. Goldeneye. And the question is, who has the tattoo, Muffy? Jack Wade. That is our favourite American character of the Bond franchise, Jack Wade. Well done. Two points for you. And uh, over to Adam to level it up. Uh, you get the Watchers, Quantum of Solace. What watch does James Bond wear in that film? In Quantum of Solace, um, Daniel Craig's an Amiga man, so I'll say it's an Amiga. Ed, well, uh, yeah, I'll give it to you. Amiga Seamaster. Amiga Seamaster. Yeah, well done. Yeah, I'll yeah, give that yeah, to you. Yeah, so two points each. Well done. Uh, round three, back to Adam to select the category. Uh, we've got Q's Gadgets or France. I'll go France. In Thunderball territory. Where in France is the Spectre agent electrocuted by Blofeld? Oh, interesting. Um, I mean, it's in a, the big meeting. I'm, I'm just going to have to guess Paris. You're right to guess Paris. Well done. I'm not sure I'd have... Uh... Maybe I'd have guessed Paris as well. It's the most famous place. And uh, over to Phil, you've got Q's gadgets. A view to a kill. What new gadget does Q employ to check on James Bond's status? Oh, it's the uh, the robot dog thing, the Q dog. Or I don't know what it's actually. Can, can I say just the robot dog? Yeah, you can say the robot dog. A uh, remote control robot dog is the answer on the card. So uh, well done. <laughs> three out of three for both of you. And uh, round number four, I think it's back to you, fellas, for the category. You've got uh, another country here, Russia or world premiers. Let's go Russia. The world is not enough. What is Viktor Zokas better known as? I think I'm going to get it. So is that not Renard, his actual name? Or is that, I think I've got that one well wrong. Oh, I thought you were going to slip up there, Phil, but you haven't. Well done, you got there eventually. Robert Carlyle's Renard. And that leaves Adam with the world premiers. Skyfall. Uh, which James Bond anniversary took place the year the film was premiered? I think that was the 50th anniversary. Well, I think that was the easiest question on the card. And uh, over to round number, what are we on now, round five. Adam, you've got landmarks or M. Oh, I'll go for M. The world is not enough. Whose daughter is out for revenge against M? Whose daughter is out? So it's Sir Robert King's daughter. It's Sir Robert King. Well done. And Phil, you've got Landmarks, Cubbyhole's favourite film, Octopussy. Where is the Fabergé egg stolen from? This one is a tough one, actually. We're looking for the specific place it was stolen from, Phil. This is going to be, I think Adam's going to win it this week. But I'm going to say the Berlin Circus, because I don't think that's right. Then. It's all, apparently, according to the card, it's the Kremlin Art Repository is where it's stolen from. Uh, I'm, not sure, uh, okay. I'm not sure that's in the dialogue, is it? I can't remember. Uh, that's, that. a, that's a tough one, that is. I think it is, but you'd need to have really heard the dialogue to get that. Round six, Phil, to uh, to save yourself in this quiz, uh, we've got health or explosives. Uh, I'll go explosives. Octopussy again. Uh, in which country is the atomic bomb to be detonated? It's in Berlin. It's in Germany. It is, yeah. West Germany is the correct answer, Phil. Well done. So, Adam, to win, you've got health, a view to a kill. Uh, which horse did Dr. Mortner fit with a special steroid implant? Pegasus. Pegasus. Congratulations, Adam. Yet another victory in the quiz. You were unlucky there, Phil. I think the one you got wrong is the only one I'd have got wrong there. 
So this brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you very much for joining us, all of you listeners, you cubbies out there. We've uh, very much enjoyed your presence and we look forward to uh, to seeing you or not seeing you, but uh, you can hear us again in our next episode. Um, thanks for joining us. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. Dum 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 dum. Dum 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 dum. Dum 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 dum. Is that just for the end, Adam? <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs>